1: Welcome, 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 my friend. As always, this is Coach Thomas, subbing in for Coach Brad, and I've cooked up something I think you're really going to enjoy. I'm super excited to bring to you another side of Coach Brad you don't normally get to see, him battling in the live high-stakes realm. Today, we have two hands for you. Hand number one is a fun $7,000 pot, and then after the jump, we have hand number two, which is over $30,000 against a famous pop star, Brad, would you like to tell the listener a bit more about the first hand?
2: So as you're probably aware, the intro was uh, actually recorded by Coach Brad. We spent maybe 45 minutes with me sitting here trying to record an intro and failing miserably.
1: There are literally 30 takes of Thomas's failed intros that are now on my computer. Maybe I'll upload them during the outro to give you a little bit of a chuckle as to how things went. It took so long that I just took over and did the intro for Coach Thomas. Ten minutes ago in the Chasing Poker Greatness production studio. Welcome,
2: welcome, welcome, my friend, to another episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. This is Coach Thomas, and I am super excited today to bring to you another side of Coach Brad and his past. Uh, for those of you that don't... <laughs> Fuck you, Brad. <laughs> don't giggle. welcome, welcome. This is Coach Thomas subbing in for. Now you've got me in my head.
1: You're not normally in your head. <laughs> Always in my head, and you're enjoying this too much. All right. Okay. How about we just do let's do a funny one this time and we'll prepare them for the intro next time. Okay. So I'm gonna do the intro as you, and then we'll make a joke about we, we trying 25 times and <laughs> sounding like a robot. All right. Okay?
2: I, I mean, I guess at least I don't have uh, boot camp members thinking
1: of me in the shower, though, Coach Brad. Mm, that's, a, that's a low blow right there. Uh, <laughs> so hand number one, I need to answer that question that I asked myself just now. Hand number one was played at the Commerce Casino. It's a fun pot, played against this guy named Esco. I didn't know anything about him at the time. I believe I had just flown in, landed, went to the casino, woke up at about 6 a.m., and then hopped in the 1020 no limit game.
2: So, Brad, what was 1020 like back in the day uh, at Commerce Casino? Were there many games running? What What was it like?
1: So, the problem is I don't have a basis of comparison because I haven't been back there in about five or six years. But there was a 1020 no limit game going. Like I said, I hopped into it at 6 a.m. and that was very normal. The 1020 no limit just ran 24 hours a day basically and then in prime time there would be five or six tables with you know a bunch of must moves and a couple of main games
2: that is that's unreal um if you look at commerce or any of the rooms now it's it's really uncommon to have more than one or two 1020 or bigger games running and i was actually having a discussion with a, a recreational player who Suggested that he used to play in the ten twenty games and the in twenty forty et cetera, and he found that it just wasn't very fun to play in those games anymore because of an influx of players who would just sit there and wait for the nuts, and it just wasn't exciting to play in. So, despite having the disposable income to play in those games, you see some of them trickling down into five ten or or five five and just avoiding ten twenty altogether.
1: Yeah, it's weird. I don't know what the ecosystem looks like now. And I don't know what's led to that mass exodus of the higher stakes games. But I guess it was just a a different time.
2: Sounds like a great time to get into poker and make some money. And I'm glad you were able to capitalize on that and continue to profitably crush online games.
1: I appreciate that. And I, you know, like I've said multiple times on this show, you know, I started out playing live, I went to online for six years at least. And then Black Friday happened. And that was when I transitioned and started flying out to the commerce.
2: So tell me about your time at the commerce. Were you staying in hotels? Were you living at the commerce? What were you doing?
1: I slept on the street mostly, cardboard boxes.
2: Oh, Exciting. You're, you're playing $30,000 pots and sleeping on the street. Sounds, sounds like a great idea.
1: Correct. No, I, I I like to tell people that I went to LA a ton. And they're like, yay, LA's amazing. But the reality was I showed up at the airport. A limo would arrive from the Commerce Casino to take me to the Crown Plaza Hotel. I would check in and then I would play poker for 60 hours a week. And then on day seven, like Jesus, I rested and sat by the Commerce pool. I didn't play poker on that seventh day. And I didn't really get to enjoy or experience a ton of LA during my time at Commerce.
2: You must have been in their good graces because I I think they're known now for being the cheapest casino in Los Angeles as far as comps and such. I I think you get about a dollar an hour for for playing 5-5.
1: Yeah, from what I've heard, they've changed a lot. It used to be in the high, high limit room anyway. You would get free food, unlimited free food, whatever you wanted. You could just order it right off the menu. The taxi service was something that they didn't really advertise a ton. But if you asked for it, they would give it to you. And it was just like a little complimentary thing. I assume that it's hard to scale that. So they wanted to keep that under wraps.
2: Sure. I know the Gardens Casino does a a similar thing. And I I think the bike does as well. But I have no clue whether Commerce still does that or if I'm just not a high enough roller for them to uh, consider it.
1: Probably the latter. But we ought to get into hand number one. The listener is on the edge of their seat here, waiting for us to talk about this hand that I played against Esco.
2: All right, let's let's dive in then. So I will introduce us to the action. Uh, we have four or five of diamonds in the hijack and we open to $70. And Esco chooses to call on the button and the blinds fold. So we are heads up going into the flop, and again we have four or five of diamonds. The pot is $170. And the flop comes Queen of Spades, Three of Diamonds, Seven of Clubs. And we have our first decision. Could you talk me through that decision, Brad?
1: Yeah. So, do we see bet or do we check with our gut shot and backdoor diamond draw? Back then, pretty much a given that I start out by betting in the decision tree is much easier to play with initiative on future streets, run multi street bluffs. And so typically, if I'm going to make an error C betting, it's going to be on the side of C betting way too frequently versus not C betting enough.
2: And can you tell me why that is? Why do you trend in that direction?
1: Because you really want to be C betting very frequently. And if you start looking for reasons to not C bet, you're going to find yourself C betting like 50% of the time or 55% of the time, and that's just going to be costing you money over the long run. So like if you want to make money, instead of Deciding whether or not to c bet, you could c bet hundred percent of the time, and that's going to be more profitable than c betting like forty percent of the time.
2: I I agree, and this is a spot that's interesting because if you input uh, your range and what a button flatting range is these days into a solver, a lot of the time on a lot of boards you're going to be uh, checking a lot of your range, but. I think this is actually kind of a major mistake, especially in lower stakes. And obviously we're not talking about a low stakes game here, but it's just so difficult for your opponent to play well post-flop in these scenarios that passing up on leveraging your stack and putting a lot of pressure on them is generally a a huge mistake. And it's where a huge amount of win rate comes from.
1: And for what it's worth, I could tell even though I had only been playing in the game for an hour or two hours, that Esko's a player. This is a guy that's thinking about the game in a high level. He's taking a lot of aggressive actions, prototypical young-looking kid in a hoodie who's up at 6 a.m., most likely been playing through the night. Like This is a dude that he's a fearsome opponent, and I learned a lot about him later on that made him even more fearsome, but I didn't know that at the time.
2: Okay, so you ought to see that. Uh, You bet $120 into $170, and Esco chooses to call. The pot's now $410 going into the turn. The turn is the Ace of Diamonds, and the board is now Queen of Spades, Three of Diamonds, Seven of Clubs, Ace of Diamonds. So we have a gut shot, and we have a flush draw now, uh, and are faced with another decision. What do you think about this one?
1: So, we have a double gut shot. So, we, we turn a double gut shot, a deuce or a six, make a straight, and then we have the five high flush draw. This is clearly a card that I ought to be barreling. Uh, the ace is a scare card, and I picked up additional equity. So, not much can really go wrong if I bet. If Esco raises, you know, we still have a ton of money behind, probably 10K or so. So, no matter what he does, unless he just rips the turn, which he's never going to do, I get to continue. So, pretty much a no brainer to bet try to realize fold equity and then a worst case scenario esco raises and we call
2: I, I like that thought one thing i think about when i'm i'm barreling with draws is whether our opponent can force us to fold our equity with like a normal sized raise and it's clearly not the case here so i'm ju- i'm not really concerned about getting blown off my hand and i we have five high so him folding any hand at all is is great for us so i i would absolutely choose to barrel like you did um, so for the listener, Brad chose to bet $310 in the into the pot of $410, and Esco opted to raise to 1100
1: Yeah, and what's kind of funny is I remember this hand so vividly, because I remember thinking on the turn that I expected Esco to raise this ace, because he's a player, he's smart, he's fearsome, and I felt like he was going to realize that this is going to be an overbluff turn card, and he was going to try to take advantage of that. And thinking about it, you know, he has ace tray suited, ace seven suited, ace queen for value, trays sevens for value here. So it's a very narrow value range that he's choosing to raise the turn with. So I expected him to raise when I bet. So I wasn't actually shocked because these overcard turns are something that I had thought a lot about at that time. So I didn't know exactly what to make of the raise. I I didn't because I expected it, typically when I expect an action and then my opponent obliges, I tend to believe that they're wider than they maybe ought to be. Yeah, that those were my thoughts um right when Esco raised. You also have the the benefit of
2: it's certainly possible that Esco would have raised off on the flop with pocket threes or pocket sevens some of the time. So there there's really a few less hands than than there might normally be even. Um, that's a really kind of advanced thought process where you're barreling this card because it's scary for him and and he's opting to raise. So I, I would say that you need to be really confident that your opponent's a, a good player to uh, make that association that he's likely to be bluffing a little bit too frequently here. Uh, that being said, I don't think you really have a decision with your exact hand. It just seems like a very slam dunk call and just evaluate on the river and hopefully you end up getting there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could jam the turn. I could bet three bet the turn. I didn't want to reopen the action. It's just such an obviously plus EV call that doing something differently opened the possibility for a major mistake and I didn't want to do that. So I chose the safe route here and called. Yeah, if you chose to jam
2: here in, in your impression of the spot was was wrong it would be a really expensive mistake so I I definitely agree with with choosing to call rather than take the very aggressive line of of bet three betting the turn anyways we move on to the river the river is the four of clubs there is twenty six hundred dollars in the pot and the board now is queen of spades three of diamonds seven of clubs ace of diamonds and four of clubs so now we have a uh, fourth pair, and there's $2,600 in the middle, and Coach Brad opts to check. Esco chooses to bet $2,200 into the pot, which is nearly a pot-sized bet, and Brad is faced with a really dicey
1: spot. And let's hear a little bit more about that from him. Well, you said that I was hoping I would get there, and I got there, right? I made a pair on the river. I went from I got upgraded from five high to a pair of fours. Well, we don't like folding bottom pair in this podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> this hand th- this hand was so interesting because my intuition told me Esco was capable of raising light on the turn. That didn't change. That information was still in my mind and now that I have a pair, it felt like this was a good spot to bluff catch. Like it felt like Esco might be overfloating the flop and raising too many turns on this ace. So I opted to bluff catch with my pair of force here on the river. Such a weird spot because well, the,
2: the hands from last week where I was calling with queen two or queen three or, or what have you seemed really slam dunk. This one seems much trickier to me um, because we're putting a ton of faith in our assumption that Esco is going to recognize we're going to over bluff the turn. And in, to combat that is going to overbluff himself. Um, it just seems tricky. And he could even be turning a hand like seven, eight suited into a bluff, which would obviously be nasty. Um, I have seen you bluff catch in online pots. I, I think the first time I came to you for coaching and I was sweating you a couple of weeks later, you called with I believe queen or Jack high in a $2,000 pot and lost to like a better bluff. So that's something that I could see, happening here so i i don't know if i love calling here um i don't
1: i don't feel particularly strongly one way or the other though major difference in those two hands by the way because i think it's a bad comparison the online hand i was playing against a fish who was obviously a fish and they just randomly chose to turn pocket deuces into a bluff esco's is an advanced player and one thing that i like to think about is a really great player who lives in Greatness Village posed the question of what does a good bluff look like, right? Like we all know what a good value line looks like, but what does a good bluff look like? And when you're playing these crushers, they are very aware of what a good bluff looks like. And so these type of bets, they tell a great story, right? We talk about stories a lot in our last episode, but Esco's line here tells a great story that is hard to discern whether he's bluffing or whether he has value, because I assume that he's going to play his value the same exact way. And yeah, it, it felt dicey at the time, but you know you know me, I, I'm getting, I need to win about 30% of the time here on the river. And I just felt like because he had such a narrow value range that if he is floating with any heavy frequency, then I'm going to win more than 30, 30% of the time here. It's also easy to say this after
2: the fact, but to to find the call in-game when you're having to risk $2,200 is, is a whole other story and another piece of the puzzle. Uh, why don't you tell us what happened? Because I don't actually know the result of this hand. I called,
1: and Esco did one of those pro moves of snap revealing his hand, and he had king 10 off. So he just floated the flop with king high, and then opted to keep pouring money into the pot. And I, I'll have to say, by the way, this this was like seven handed, and there were like three old men sitting at the table when I called the river here. And everybody except for Esco looked at me like I was a space alien when I called the river with the pair of fours here. They were like, <laughs> they were looking for like some cooler type situation. Esco shows King Eye. I, I show a pair of fours for probably the biggest pot that had been played in the last three or four hours. But yeah, it was a it was a really fun time.
2: It's got to be a pretty good feeling.
1: (laughs) It's a great feeling. You know, it's way better than calling with Jack High and having a student on a call and getting shown a pair of deuces and losing a big pot, (laughs) that's for sure.
2: (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I actually like his raise a lot here, especially if if he had like the King of Diamonds and was was planning on, on bluffing a diamond uh, river uh, as well, I think that it's a really interesting hand. That would be bad in this exact run out to have the King of Diamonds, but I think that would have been a really reasonable candidate on the turn. I think his play is amazing.
1: Yeah, he, he's a very strong player. And I remember after the hand, we, we started talking because that's a conversation starter, right? That's like, okay, let's get to know each other a little bit more after going through this battle against one another. And, he mentioned to me that he managed his frequencies based on the suits in his hand, but then kind of sheepishly admitted afterwards that he would probably have ignored his frequencies in that situation and just pure floated the flop, which basically he was, that was his way of saying, you know, well played. And I found out a little later on that Esco is one of the brightest poker minds that I had ever ran across in the wild, just a raw talent that was just totally off the charts. The dude was, you know, the dude's a stud. Certainly seems like it. And now this is Brad once again impersonating Coach Thomas because he doesn't have the guts to lead into the jump. But after this jump, Coach Brad, a.k.a. me, will be playing a $30,000-plus pot against a famous pop star. Stick around because you don't want to miss it.
0: Before boot camp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site. Kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And pre-flop boot camp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to, to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step.
1: Once you jumped in boot camp, what was your experience like?
0: Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what Rangers should look like and what hands should be played and what situations, you know, it was it was exciting because I I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that, that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really... Helping uh, one another kind of feeling like you were a part of a team. It was uh, it was a great experience I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot What
1: was your experience like playing cards post boot camp?
0: It's a totally different experience, you know It put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch-up um, I really feel like it's, it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to, to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re- really work together, even after boot camp was over, it's, it's been awesome.
1: What's your sample size of winning post boot camp?
0: I think I have 70,000 hands played by now. You know, I'm a father and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size.
1: Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month. The price is $199 and your link to join is ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp, all one word, or you can click through in the description box of this episode.
2: Let's hop into our second hand of the day. And, and Brad, you mentioned that you played this hand against a famous pop star. Could you share who that
1: is? No welcome back for the audience. No, no, no nothing. Absolutely was- not. Pure. Absolutely not. Let's jump into hand number two. All right. Yes. All right, Terminator Thomas. The pop star in question is uh, one Bruno Mars. There was a time back in the day at the Commerce Casino. I don't know if you remember, but this was actually the year that he played the Super Bowl. And I didn't know how, quite how famous Bruno Mars was while I was playing against him until afterwards I looked up and saw that he had something like 20 million Twitter followers. That was where I was like, oh, this guy's kind of a big deal. Yeah, I
2: remember listening to his songs on the radio while I was in in college, so I, I, who am not familiar with uh, much in the music industry, even knew about him myself, so definitely a big name.
1: People acted weird around him, which was a very weird thing, but he was just a kid who wanted to kind of camouflage, be one of the boys, play cards, before he went on a a worldwide tour, so he was a very down-to-earth good dude.
2: I think that's my my dream in life is to be able to afford to to play play poker high stakes poker recreationally and and have a good time whether I, I win or lose. So that's that's pretty cool to see.
1: Now apparently he used to play in like the small stakes room at Commerce too before he kind of blew up and and got famous. So poker's been a part of his life for apparently a while now. And now that you know he has infinite money, why not play the biggest game in the room? Absolutely. So let's dive
2: into this one. So we are $17,000 effective uh, and you actually have Bruno covered here. That's got to feel, uh, be a little bit of a stroke to your ego, huh?
1: He just kept spinning it up and I just kept adding chips to the table. So we had been playing about 17 hours at this point And I had resolved myself, like we mentioned in the last episode, when a recreational player spins it up and gets super deep, never leave the table. And this hand went down at about 9 or 10 a.m., the table was full. There was a full waiting list. All the morning regulars were just sitting around, chomping at the bit, wanting to get in the game. But none of us were leaving. I promise they were they had zero chance of getting into this game because nobody was standing up.
2: So you straddle under the gun with pocket fives. You have the five of clubs and the five of spades. And it folds to Bruno, who opens to $200 on the button. And you choose to call. And just for the listener, this is... the the straddle is to $40. So Bruno opens to $200, and Brad opts to call, which seems very, very normal, and I wouldn't do anything different. Uh, So let's go on to the flop. The pot is $430. The flop is... Jack of Diamonds, nine of Diamonds, and the five of Hearts. We hit absolute gin. I know uh, my heart starts racing when I'm playing live poker, and I I flop a set, super deep against a recreational player, and hoping for good things to happen here.
1: Yeah, it, it felt pretty good. It felt pretty good seeing that little five on the flop. Okay, so you opt to check,
2: which is pretty natural, just to check to the pre-flop raiser here and he puts in a very large bet. He bets $400 into the pot of $430, and you're faced with your first decision. What do you think about this one?
1: Let's get more money in the pot. Let's play a big one, Bruno. You know We've been playing for 17 hours together. I've got him covered. Let's play a massive pot. I don't think there's really any other option besides raising. Bruno's sizing here. He bet close to pot, typically an indicator that he has something that he's not not gonna be willing to give it up quite easily. So let's just start shoveling the chips in. This
2: is some this is a topic that we've been discussing a lot recently at Greatness Village. We've got a, a group of students who seem to think that you flop a set or top set or or just a very strong hand and they start slow playing and not shoveling money into the middle as fast as possible. And it's just a huge blender, especially when you're really deep to not go ahead and raise off here. And I think that choosing to call uh, rather than raise would be a very, very expensive mistake here. I agree. So you opt to check raise to $1,400. And Bruno uh, obliges again and actually uh, bet three bets to $4,000. And you're faced with another decision.
1: Yeah, I remember that he did this pretty quickly too. He grabbed two stacks of whites and stuck them into the middle very fast, which it it made me pretty confident about my bottom set. I I didn't think he had flopped a a larger set because I think that he would have hesitated before putting more money into the pot if that were the case. And I want to say for the record, you know, Bruno did spin up this stack, right? To 17K. He wasn't a bad player. He wasn't just trying to give it away, but the downside to Bruno was he had a tendency to massively overplay hands in spots like this that left him vulnerable to where he could play very, very well for a long period of time, You know, overplay one hand at some depth and just get dusted instantly.
2: So by overplaying a hand, are you suggesting that he might raise a hand like ace jack or king jack in this spot and just bet three bet it?
1: It's quite possible. Yeah. Okay. Or que- Queens, Kings, Aces as well. Then you're still
2: feeling really great about the spot. I When I, I saw that he bet three about the flop initially, I was a little bit alarmed. I still think the hand's too strong to toss in the muck, but I, I wasn't feeling nearly as good about it. But if he's someone who can overvalue top pair or two pair or, or something of that nature, or even a flush draw, then I'm, I'm very thrilled and just trying to go with it.
1: If I flop a set against this player archetype and they flop a higher set, then they just get my money. So
2: you opt to call rather than to go ahead and re-raise. Uh,
1: why did you choose to call rather than re-raise? Because of the reasons that I said. I've, I I felt that it was in Bruno to overplay a hand and putting in the fourth bet on the flop, I felt like he'd be able to fold a lot of those hands that he's overplaying and I've got him on the hook, and I did not want to give him any wiggle room. And I realized at the time I was sleep-deprived, very, very sleepy. I realized that flatting was risky on jack of diamonds, nine of diamonds, five of hearts. But I just decided to gamble flat, hope for a brick, and then make it like a two-bet pot on the turn where I could check-raise all in.
2: Yeah, I, I I don't really know how I feel about about this spot on one side raising and if he's overvaluing ace jack or kings or queens or, or something like that if he chose to three about the flop i don't expect him to really find the fold button so i i kind of like that idea and calling if like let's say he has ace jack and the turns a queen or a king uh, it's going to kill the action if it's a diamond it's going to kill the action so there's a lot of really bad cards that can come on the turn where we're not going to get to shovel all the money in the middle. I think I would rather just go ahead and continue raising on the flop, but I don't think that this is as big of a mistake as as uh, opting not to raise versus the first bet.
1: Yeah, and I understand that sentiment and just I want to lean on my past self to navigate this spot better than you or I could in the moment because past Brad had been playing for 17 straight hours with this guy and felt like He could find a fold if I did bet four bet the flop. So I I trust the past version of myself to have more information to guide them into flatting here. I
2: I think that that's reasonable, and at least with me, I'm not used to playing thirty thousand dollar pots. So uh, I expect you, your old self, would have navigated this a lot better than I would have, being uh, scared money at that amount of at the at these stakes.
1: I don't know, man. Something comes over me when I'm playing poker, and it could be the last money that I have on earth. It's like. When the hand is being played, I just do what I think is the right thing to do. And that's just how I've always been. So when it came down to it, this was just what I felt was right. I don't remember being nervous. I don't remember being scared. It was just like, what's the optimal decision here? And how do I maximize EV in this spot? Okay, well, let's move
2: on with the hand. The turn is the two of clubs. And the, the flop is, or the board is, jack of diamonds, nine of diamonds, five of hearts, two of clubs, and there is about $8,400 in the middle. So you opt to check, and Bruno decides to bet $5,000 into a pot of 8400 And you're faced with another decision, but I don't think this one is really a decision. There's only the option to really go all in. If your opponent has a jack or queens or kings or aces, it's really easy to just stack off thinking, oh, the price I'm getting is so good, and my hand's strong. Or if they have a flush draw, uh, you want to make sure that all the money goes in now while they still have a draw versus giving them a chance to shut down if, if they miss their draw.
1: And there's, there are some pretty important points here. The first being that I'm not a lewd person. And I understand lots of people touch the decks of cards at casinos, but that deuce of clubs popping off on the turn. Like I just wanted to make out with that card in front of everybody. That was just (laughs) such the, it's the most beautiful deuce of clubs that has popped off on any turn out of any hand that I've ever played. You know, so I check there and then Bruno bets 5k and everything you said is hundred percent accurate. We also have to think about how do we put this last bet in, right? Do we just snap, put it in, do we put it in very fast? In the moment, I gave Bruno a little stare for 20 to 30 seconds. I'm obviously doing somersaults on the inside. Oh, God. The the stare down play, Brad. (laughs) You have to. Like, this pot is too big to miss out on that 8K worth of value by just overdoing it and giving him any option to get off the hook, right? So, like, I wanted to make it seem like there was an actual thought here that I was considering just calling, I was considering shoving. I just wanted to plant that seed. So, you know, I Hollywooded, which if you're ever going to Hollywood in a hand, I would say that this spot is probably the one you want to choose, right? I, I,
2: I want to say I'm not criticizing you for Hollywooding. It's just the the stare down. <laughs>
1: seems a little bit cheesy and unnecessary here, but... Well, I'm pretending like I'm thinking, right? I want to give off the impression that I have a decision here and it's not just a no-brainer. So I,
2: I have a question that I, I'm not sure whether you're going to be able to answer. I think it was your podcast with Fedor holz he mentioned that uh, some of this competition in live games would sit there and they'd take the same amount of time, but you could tell when they were actually thinking about that spot. So It's pretty
1: clear that I was not thinking, right? But <laughs> Bruno Mars is not Fedor Holtz. And no diss on Bruno Mars, but nobody's Fedor Holtz as it relates to poker. And if it was against a regular, this hand would have played out totally differently. So this was just specifically targeted at this specific player
2: okay so what happened brad did did we get rich
1: well we ripped it in and bruno just let loose a string of expletives which is good for me this no 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 snap call is good for me and he just he started tanking right like he went deep deep in the tank he spent probably five or ten minutes weighing this decision even though It shouldn't really be a giant decision here. He's already invested over half of his stack, and he was just thinking and thinking and thinking. Like I I vividly remember sitting there and asking myself if this was a dream because, like I said, it's 9 a.m. We started yesterday afternoon sometime. And I, I had to check my whole cards just to make sure that I still had a set. I was like, I, is this really happening? Like, <laughs> am I really playing a $30,000 plus pot against Bruno Mars? Um, yeah, so he he just tanked and tanked and tanked. And he started verbalizing. You know, he's like, he started, uh, he asked me if I would run it twice. And I didn't respond. And uh, him and I had, you know, we'd become poker buddies over the past 12 hours or so. And he was like, no, no, I know that he will. I know he'll run it twice, like. So he's like verbalizing. He's like, ah, he could have it. You could have a set of nines. You could have a set of fives. And I was thinking, like, no, stop, stop that line of thought, Bruno. Get go somewhere else. Don't, don't, don't go there. And then he, then he started saying some magical words, like, ah, oh, he could have, you know, he could have the queen ten of diamonds. He could have the eight ten of diamonds. Well, oh, maybe he's got the king queen of diamonds. And then I was like, yeah, like when he started saying that, I realized that I got him. And eventually, he put in his last money and he frantically asked me how many times I wanted to run it. I said, however many times you want to run it, man, I don't care. He asked me what I had. I told him I had a set. He said, fuck, I'm drawing dead. And uh, that was the end. (laughs) The the dealer burned and placed the river card. And uh, Bruno stood up to leave the game to go to valet and asked me for a $10 chip in which to (laughs) tip the valet. So I tossed him a little $10 chip and then he disappeared. (laughs) The time you uh, gave Bruno 10 bucks to pay for the valet. That was the happiest $10 valet tip that I've ever given anyone.
2: That's a a really cool experience, Brad. And I'm sure that's going to be something that's fun to tell to maybe your grandkids one day that that time you you stacked the famous pop star and and played a pot worth uh more than a lot of cars
1: yeah it it was a really fun time that was a super fun hand one that it's likely that i'll never forget and happy to share it with the chasing poker greatness audience today
2: thanks brad
1: (laughs) thanks thanks man thanks (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> do you have do you have any do you have anything in store for next week's Tactical Tuesday?
2: Yes, actually, I do. Uh, we are gonna dive into your Garrett battles next week.
1: I don't remember the hands. How can we dive into it? <laughs> we need to. You've got to make something up, or or recall. I can't just make it up. I don't know what happened. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about the time that I challenged Garrett to a push-up contest and ran him out of town. Did you really? No. <laughs> Jesus Christ.
2: Um, No, I don't have something planned yet. So I don't know what we want to say.
1: Perfect. So once you put yourself back together after I dismantled you and your 20 failures at getting the intro across, you can come up with a, a fun topic for the listener to tune into next week. And we will see you then. Thank you, Brad. Ha <laughs> ha!